0: Heavenly Father, when we are weak, you are strong. When we think we're not weak, you are still strong. You still have all power and all authority. Lord, there's never a moment when we are not weak. We need you in every aspect of our life. There is nothing by our own strength and power that we can do that is um, worthy of of winning your favour. And so as we look to your word and to the wonderful good news that has been proclaimed about what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly, to think clearly, and to help all of us to hear unhindered, to see the beauty of what you have done for us in Christ, and respond in repentance, faith, or in thanksgiving. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I was to ask you the question, what is love? People would give you all sorts of funny little answers to that question of what is love. They might say, holding hands and walking along the beach. Telling my spouse that they're beautiful. Although, blokes, beautiful is probably not a word that we get told very often or we feel that comfortable hearing. You might think of someone who sticks by our side in all times. But do those things define love or do they describe the response or the outworkings of love? Likewise, if I asked you the question of what is the gospel? Equally, it's a, it's a simple question, despite the fact that we're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about this simple question this morning. Now, someone might say, well, it's, it's about loving your neighbour and loving God. They might say it's believing in Jesus, caring for the poor, caring for the oppressed. All of those things, they are good things. But none of them are the gospel. They are human responses or the outworkings in response to the gospel. The gospel is not about what you and I do in response to God, the gospel is the good news of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As you notice, we had two different Bible readings, first from John 3 and from Romans chapter 3. And so firstly, we're going to look at this question of, you must be born again. Why? From John chapter 3. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with George Whitfield. Robbie, can I have control back? George Whitfield was a great evangelist in the 18th century. He's described in these terms that he began preaching at the age of 24 and is the greatest preacher America has ever heard and seen. He preached 18,000 sermons. don't think I've got the yet to over 10 million people. Don't think I've got there either. During the Great Awakening, he planted 150 churches in New England, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Maryland. He preached in open air with crowds as large as 30,000 people at a time. I know our Tuesday community group talked about people who could project their voice to large crowds. He is a good example of that. Amazingly, he preached to such crowds without a microphone and would cough up blood from the strain on his throat. It is estimated that most Americans heard him preach at least once and his farewell sermon on Boston Commons drew more people than Boston's entire population and was the largest crowd that had ever gathered in America up until that time. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Imagine having that on your resume. It was said that he preached on John chapter 3 more than 3,000 times. That's probably more than the number of sermons I've ever preached in my life that he has preached just on that one chapter with that message, you must be born again. And he was asked the question of why do you keep preaching this message, you must be born again? And his answer to that question was because you must be born again. Now often we hear that expression, born again Christians, as though it kind of defines a a certain select group of Christians. But what the scriptures tell us is that if you are a Christian, that is only possible if you have been born again. There is no such thing as born again Christians and general purpose other Christians. It's either born again or not, or born again or still dead in your trespasses and sins. The term born again, first used by Jesus in his exchange with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, presumed to be a member of the Sanhedrin and he was a teacher in Israel. He was a wise, learned man and just by the nature of his role, he had probably memorized the entirety of the books of Moses, if not the entirety of the Old Testament. So he had a fair idea of what God had made known. Now he'd recognise, you see there in verse 2, he recognised Jesus that this Jesus has to have come from God. Nobody can do the things that Jesus is doing unless God is with him. But in response, Jesus says to Nicodemus, this wise, learned man who studied the scriptures very thoroughly, he says to him in verse 3, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He's a clever guy. But he hears these words and is like, Jesus, I, I've stated the scriptures. You say, unless, I am, unless I'm born again, I will not see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, born again? Surely you're not saying, go back where I came from. That, that's not going to happen. Nicodemus' mum's quite relieved about that as well. But Jesus repeats that phrase in different words in verse 5, saying, you must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom. So he says, Jesus says, it is necessary, you must either be born again, or sometimes translated, be born from above by God's enabling, which would make sense of Jesus referring it separately in verse 5 as being born of the Spirit. That is, that it is the Spirit's work to bring about new life in you. But in both of those statements, he says, you will not see the kingdom, you will not enter the kingdom unless you are born again by the power of God. But Nicodemus still didn't get it. And you think, if he's such a clever guy, he studied the scriptures and he doesn't get it, what chance have we got? Why would you make something so essential to the gospel confusing? Well, what is new birth? We use that term in all different sorts of ways. When we talk about a new birth, we might talk about a baby and we've had lots of them in this church this year and there's still some more to come. We talk about something coming into existence that formerly didn't exist. We might talk giving birth to a a new idea, an idea you haven't had or coming into existence. Without speaking about the mechanics of the how, what it speaks of is a powerful transformation that God alone can do. But why does God have to do this making new, bringing about something new in us that didn't exist? Because, as Paul says to the Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Or Paul to the Romans, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He says you can't. You are spiritually blind. Unless the Spirit opens your eyes, you cannot. Your natural state is to be hostile towards God. You're not attracted to it at all. It sounds like foolishness. As Paul said to the Ephesians, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Lifeless. You need to be given life. We weren't just spiritually sick, but spiritually dead. And because of all these things, Jesus says, You must. It is necessary that you be born again. You be made new by God. Now, while he doesn't explain the mechanics of how all of that works... He does explain the results or the effect that it would have. To Nicodemus, he speaks in terms of, look around at the wind. You don't necessarily know how the wind works, but you, you see what it does. You see the, the trees swaying around, you feel it on your face, and you know there is wind because I see the response, or the, the outworking of the wind. Same as it comes to when you are born again from above, there will be visible, tangible evidence that something has changed. To claim that you have been born again and never, ever change at all, I would highly doubt the claim that you have indeed been born again. An inner transformation has to take place. Being made new in our mind that doesn't understand because these things are spiritually discerned. Being made new in our heart that is by nature hostile to God that we might be awakened to his goodness to see even the nature of our sin. But before you fear and think, well, maybe I haven't changed enough, we, we change at different rates. We get jealous of these people who come to faith and all of a sudden next day they seem to be everything that we wish we were. Change may not happen that instantly for you and there's no need to get jealous about the person who it does but change must happen. God does not do a work in someone's life for them to remain the same. Like no one goes out on a still day and say look at the wind. In the same way, no one says they are born again and have nothing, evidence to show that. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, speaks of it in this way. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Like He has that sort of tension that Paul has. He goes, I'm not doing the things that I, that I know I should do. I'm doing the things I know I shouldn't do. But I praise God that I'm still, even though I haven't made the progress I want to make or where I, the end goal of where I want to be, by the grace of God, I'm not who I used to be. He has made me new. But even despite the wonderful window analogy, Nicodemus still doesn't quite get it so we go to another analogy, verses 14 to 15, which comes from Numbers 21. Jesus points Nicodemus back to the experience of the bronze serpent in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21, where if you cast your mind back to Numbers 21, the people were complaining and grumbling about God. They were saying, God, you're not good. You're not looking after us the way in which you should. They're dishonouring their God who has given them everything. And so in judgment, God sends them these venomous snakes among them, that if anyone is bitten by it, will surely die. But he doesn't leave it there. He also commands Moses to set up a bronze serpent on a pole. He says, and anybody who's been bitten by these deadly snakes, if they look upon that serpent, they will live. So Jesus, or God, had punished them for not honouring him. He had provided a means, that would send them for a natural trajectory towards death, but he also provided the way of escape. He said, look and place your trust in what I have provided. And so here he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In the same way as though Israelites were headed for certain death, they had poison running through their veins if they were bitten by these snakes. So, everyone in all mankind has the poison of sin running through their veins, and only by the means that God has provided, Jesus Christ on the cross, raised on the third day, trusting in Him, can they have newness of life. In both cases, they were, people were under the judgment of death. God was right to judge. Yet God provided the way of escape. Now some object to that because they think, that's cruel. Why would God judge or punish a people for not honouring him? Who does he think he is? Now when I was younger, I don't remember the full extent of the story, I'm sure my parents will clarify later in a, on a phone call. At some point, I put rocks up my brother's nose. Now, he's older than me, so I don't know how a brother two, year, two and a half years older than me let me put rocks up his nose, but I got rocks up his nose. Um, he didn't need to go to hospital, we got him out eventually. If my parents were to say, Steve, no TV for a week, or if they were to say, give me some other punishment for doing that, would they have the right to do so? Well, they did kind of bring me into the world, didn't they? I was dependent upon them for absolutely everything. I had dishonoured them and also chucked rocks up my brother's nose. Sorry, Jeff. They probably had every right to. In fact, you might even question them as parents if they just thought, hey, how funny is that? Steve rocks up his brother's nose. We're just going to let it go and have a giggle. We're going to give him the impression, that's funny. Let's do it again. Maybe I will. See if I can get a... rocks up my brother's nose now. Likewise, the Bible tells us, all of us, we were created by God. Our very existence is due to the fact that God brought us into being. We are dependent upon him for every single thing in life. Even a person who hasn't yet trusted Jesus is dependent upon him because... He's the one who made this world and he's the one who sustains every single bit of it. So we're owned by him. We belong to him. We're accountable to him as the one who made us. He's the one who knows us best and what is best for us. And he has every right to discipline us. When you think about the Garden of Eden, you've got Adam and Eve. Underneath God's rule, for the first time, everything is perfect perfect relationships there was no fighting there's no bickering there's no selfishness there was no it was full of god's blessing there was no hurt no hate no selfishness what ruined that perfection what ruined it was when adam and eve decided i'm not going to listen to god i'm going to do what i think is best That's all it was, really. I'm going to do what I think is best. I don't need God. Great that you've created this place and all this stuff. Good on you. But I don't need you. I'm just going to do whatever I want because I think I know better. And you know what? When you look around, you watch the news, and you uh, shed tears for some of the things you're seeing happening around the world, every single injustice that happens in this world happens because someone says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. No one tells me I can't do what I want to do. It's the the response of that rejection of God I don't want to live for him I'm going to be my own man. No one tells me what to do. And every injustice every wicked thing we see in this world is the result of people being free to do what they want to do. It hurts others it dishonours God. Is God unjust by opposing this rebellion? Is he? Would you call him a good God if he's like, I don't care, they're not honouring me, even though I've given them everything, they're hurting one another, or my creation is, is suffering as a result? Would he be good if he's like, no biggie, doesn't matter? Just turn a blind eye? No, because he is good, he must oppose that which is evil. If we just said, no, God doesn't care about this stuff, we would say he is not good. And he is. Does God have a right to hold us accountable? You bet he does. If he made us, if he has made himself plainly known, says in Romans... There is a God of eternal power that all are without excuse. Yeah, he does have a right to hold us accountable. Does that make God vindictive? It's kind of like, if you you hurt me, you dishonor me, I'm going to get you back. It's not like a, a parent who might accidentally discipline their child in anger as opposed to for their good. It's not like he delights in paying back evil for evil No, we see the very heart of God in Ezekiel he says speaking to the nation of Israel about this and he says save them as I live declares the Lord God i have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways for why will you die o house of israel It's like the example of the bronze serpent and the example of Jesus. It is not in the heart of God that he desires people to be punished for their sin. It is in the heart of God to provide the means of escape that if people look upon God's provision and trust in that, that they may be saved. The same God who announces and issues the punishment is the same God who provides the gracious means of Escape. What about penalty and justice from Romans 3? Romans was the very first book I ever preached through in pastoral ministry back in 2010, I think I started. It's an important book. Like, even in the opening chapters, it tells us he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then from Romans one eighteen through to 3.20, it goes to great extent to show that this is universal. Every person born into this world is not right before God and needs to be made right before God. Opening chapter, it's out of 118. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. She worked through to th- chapter 3, verse 9. It says, all, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, in other words, every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are under the curse of sin. We've inherited it through Adam and Eve. It excludes nobody. Then you read verses 10 to 18 of Romans 3. It says none are good, none who seek after God, none are righteous, no, not one. In 3.20 we see the whole world is accountable to God. If Romans only had chapter 1, verse 18, verses three, verse, chapter 3, verse 20, that would probably be the most depressing book in the world. It just, it just makes it clear cut over and over and over again. Humans, even the nice ones, even the ones that you love the most, we inherit that sinful nature through our forefathers, Adam and Eve, that by nature our natural disposition is to be hostile to God, that we want to do our own thing, we don't want him in our life. We are by nature subject to the punishment for our rebellion against God. So if we're all under a curse and accountable to God... If that's the bad news, if the bad news is universal, then the good news is a good news to be heard by everybody. My favourite word in the Bible, and I've said this before, is but. All of these great passages that speak about the natural condition of the human heart, the natural condition of our standing before God, then there's a But. And what God has done to rescue us from that helpless situation. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest, made known, available to us in Christ. Through faith for all who believe in him. This righteousness that was never possible through the law is now possible through Jesus Christ. The same people who were all formerly under sin, both Jew, Gentile, everybody, all of no distinction, can be made right with God because of what Jesus has done by faith in Him. Faith in Jesus is not just believing the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day, it is a faith that not only believes. A faith that has repented when you see that this shows the, the magnitude of my wickedness and my sin against God, that he would have to die in my place. It's a faith that says, I am not right. I deserve that death. And not only to recognize that, but to believe, trust and live our life centered around that very truth. Biblical faith is more than just agreeing with facts about Jesus. We'll see a bit more of that next week as we get back to Mark. It is a lifelong commitment that forms both our beliefs and our life, that we be entrusted to him in all things. I began to believe in January 1996. I still do. And biblical faith says I will continue to until the day in which I die. It's a faith that governs everything about who I am. How I live is a result of not what I'm doing, but a result of what God has done. It changes my outlook about sin, about who I belong to, who is the master of my life, who is the one in control of everything, and the fact that there is hope in every single day. And through this faith that is described in verse 22, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have the very righteousness of Christ. Not just a, we are considered forgiven, that's part of it, but we are given, like into our account, the very fullness of the righteousness of Christ himself. So on Judgment Day, I can feel confident to stand before him. Not because my life has been perfect in every single day, like even if it was just based on this morning, I'd be out. Not a chance in the world. But a confidence that rests upon the fact that through faith, the very righteousness of God has been credited to me. On that day, I'm not going to stand up and say, Jesus... Let me in because now I did pastoral ministry for this time. I did uh, youth youth stuff before that and whatever else. My answer will be nothing else than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and his righteousness given to me through faith. And just as verse 23 to 24, all fall short of his glory and of his good standards, so all who by faith come to him will be justified freely by his grace. That term justified, a legal term, just means legally declared right in his sight. We often use that expression, justified is justified, never sinned. And the one who is called the judge over all, who has seen every single thing I've ever done, past, present, future, every thought I've ever had, past, present and future, he is the one who says, you are declared right. Which gives me a fair bit of confidence. To know that the one who will judge every action, every thought I've ever had, has seen it. And by faith in Christ, he says, you are declared right. The price has been paid. It has been paid in full in Jesus' as he paid the penalty of death that I deserved, says in Romans chapter 6, Now you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has redeemed us. He has propitiated us by his blood. That is, the wrath of God against my sin has been satisfied. It has been turned away. And it has been placed on Christ. I have gone from someone who was rightly under God's wrath. No matter how many of my friends' parents thought, Steve, he's a nice guy. I deserved God's wrath. And I go from being under his wrath to being declared right, not guilty, pleasing in his sight. Not because he had a soft, gooey feeling, he's like, ah, Steve, he's such a cute little fellow with all his freckles and stuff. But because justice had been served. The penalty for sin had been paid and it was paid and taken by the Lord Jesus So essentially the gospel is the proclamation of the bad news. It is the proclamation of the bad news of the present state of affairs. It is the proclamation that in your own standing you aren't right before God. You need to be made right before God. And what God has done through Christ Jesus to reconcile you to himself we must not confuse our actions or the outworkings of the gospel as being the gospel. Or as one preacher said, we need to have a holistic gospel ministry, not a halfistic gospel ministry. That this gospel the good news would be proclaimed, that we would proclaim into this dying and dark world what God has done to deal with our sin once and for all. It is a good news that demands a response. It calls us either to, to trust, to cling in what God has provided for us and to look to it and place all of our hope on that or to reject it. Or as Paul, no, Paul John describes it in this way, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He says, the person who has believed has passed from death to life. Eternal life is theirs now. But unless God awakens you, unless you turn from your sin that led Jesus to the cross, and turn your eyes to the cross. Trust in the completed work of Jesus on the cross. Who was raised on the third day in victory. Who has guaranteed and sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Who, who has chosen you that you might become more and more like his son. To grow in Christ-likeness and sanctification. And to one day see him face to face in all of his beauty. And to stand before him with the confidence of nothing more than not my works, but in the completed work of Jesus and his righteousness alone. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that it is not in my power or in any of our power to save ourselves, because if it was, absolutely none of us would ever be right in your sight. We even still, having been made new at times, we have a propensity to to go back and to decide we want to live our own way. We thank you that our penalty for our past, present and future has been dealt with in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. And even though that's not like automatically just granted to everyone, Lord, as you open our eyes and we see, confess our sin, we repent, we turn from our sin and turn and trust in your provision. And we give you thanks because we lean on nothing more than your grace. We thank you for that grace that that rescues, that restores, that provides not only for our life, future with you, but a grace that provides our security, our confidence, our growth in Christ likeness right here and now and enables us to proclaim this wonderful good news in a dying world. We give you thanks for your work within us. Help us that we might never rely upon our own strength, but forever lean upon your work that you have done on our behalf. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.